We can't do what we need to do without collaboration and cooperation from our communities and the residents of those communities. Sherlock here for Franklin Midas, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet, WFPR.FM, and in the local Franklin Mass FM radio dial 102.9, here today for another Making Sense of Climate session with my climate guide, Ted McIntyre. Ted, happy Tuesday. Great Tuesday. Beautiful, beautiful blue sky Tuesday. So yeah, happy to be here. And it's a special day because we have our special guest as well, our state rep, Jeff Roy. Jeff, welcome. Hey, Steve and Ted, it is so great to be back here, and I'm glad we did it today on a beautiful sunny day. Yesterday was a little dreary, uh, but uh, I think uh, the events of the weekend speak to what we are uh, undergoing with uh, global warming and climate change. So it, yeah. it brings it all home, but I prefer it today. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we are with you. When I was walking today, I thoroughly enjoyed the fact that I didn't return home either dripping wet or soaking from sweat. <laughs> there you go. So since we did this once upon a time, you've been on a couple of trips, one to Europe, and then more recently, you took a little jaunt to see some of the turbines. So sure. why don't you give uh, the listeners a little recap on some of your trips and learnings? Sure. So, you know, the uh, the trip out to uh, Ireland wasn't necessarily energy related, but uh, we did make some uh, some energy stops along the way. And uh, I'll tell you uh, from that trip, the most intriguing thing I walked away uh, with was a um, a cardboard bottle of water with a plastic cap on it that uh, did not become detached once you unscrewed it. And it was made from 80% recycled material and it was all recyclable yet again. Now, and let me, uh, let me just stop you there for a sec. You said cardboard bottle and with a cap on it, it held the liquid? It held the liquid, it held the cap. Uh, I actually took one home with me because I'm going to uh, have it on display in my office at the state house. But it was an ingenious way to provide water to people without using that ridiculous uh, plastic bottles and the caps that end up on the ground or in the uh, in the trash. And, uh, you know, it was. It was something that I, I looked at and said, you know, we've been talking about what we're going to do about plastic bottles and whether we're going to change the bottle bill uh, or steps we're going to take. And here I held in my hand over in Dublin uh, a perfect solution. And uh, I brought it home with me and going to talk to some of the uh, the folks in the uh, in the bottle space about how easy it would be to replicate that here. Sounds fantastic. Jeff, Jeff, you're the only guy I know that would go to Dublin and say that he held a, a thing of liquid in his hand and said it was the perfect solution and that it was not Guinness Stout. It was water. Well, but, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sit here today and tell you that uh, Guinness never crossed my lips, uh, <laughs> but uh, we won't share the quantities. Uh, you know, it, it was it was funny because uh, one of the other 
pieces. One of the other things I had done on the trip, and uh, the trip was the largest delegation of American politicians uh, to have visited Ireland. And there were approximately 200 of us from across the country. And it was also the largest delegation to have ever uh, visited and, and spent time in the Irish parliament. Uh, the trip also included a visit to Belfast uh, to talk about the troubles and to see uh, that the walls were still up and gates were still closed at night and to talk to folks about some legislation that's being proposed today and talking about some of the things that uh, Massachusetts and Ireland do well together and can continue to do well together. We talked about their commitment to sustainability uh, in all, you know, many facets of living out there. So it was a fascinating trip. And as exciting as it is to go to Ireland, I do have to say that my trip 20 miles south on a boat, uh, 20 miles south of Martha's Vineyard, to see the first installations of offshore wind turbines in the entire United States. This is commercial scale activity mm -hmm. that's going on. And Massachusetts is the host to the first commercial scale offshore wind farm in the country. And it's underway. It's under construction. By the time I got there, they were building one turbine a day. That's for a total of 62 turbines that will begin producing power uh, by, I believe it will be November of 2023. Those 62 turbines will provide enough power for 400,000 homes in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Now, this is something that we first voted on as a legislature in 2016. I took over the committee in 2021, and we have really made a really uh, solid effort to building an offshore wind industry in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, uh, number one, to to uh, fulfill our need for robust, clean, and renewable energy. And as luck would have it, Massachusetts is geographically situated with some of the most robust wind in the entire contiguous United States. It happens to be 20 miles south of Martha's Vineyard, happens to be the home of seven lease areas for wind farms, and we have the first one going. And it was uh, simply remarkable to go out there in a boat and see them. And when I looked at them, the first reaction I had was, this is our generation's Hoover Dam. Mm -hmm. You know, what happened in the 1920s when they were building this great dam, which became a, a wonder of the world and one of the uh, an engineering marvel where they tamed the Colorado River uh, in order to make that area of the nation habitable and also to provide power to cities like uh, Los Angeles. Obviously, Las Vegas cropped out of this uh, whole thing as well. Uh, things are not looking good for the Colorado River as we sit here today. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, man created that problem. Uh, with the creation of the dam. And I think man can fix that problem, uh, you know, hopefully in the near future. But that 
damn revolutionized that area of the country so that people could move out uh, to that area of the country and that uh, that farms and businesses could uh, continue to prosper along that river. And it also created Lake Mead, which was a recreational area that gets 10 million visitors a year. It also created the city of Las Vegas, which uh, gets a, a lot of uh, visitors. So uh, it was a tremendous engineering marvel, and it uh, created uh, power for uh, several cities out in the west of the United States. And as I looked at these turbines that I was looking at out in the ocean in Massachusetts, I was saying, wow, I know how those people must have felt back in 1935 when that dam opened and it began generating power and uh, the, the economic prosperity that followed. It said, that's what we are likely going to see for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, because it's the first of several wind farms that are going to be developed. It's going to lead to economic development in our area. It's going to provide the clean, renewable energy that we need to reach our goals that we set uh, to be net zero by 2050. Just a lot of uh, excitement uh, that was generated from that particular boat journey. And I can't wait to go back there again in November when all of those uh, turbines are spinning and I'll see 62 of them spinning and generating clean, renewable energy. Um, it's, it's, it's the beginning of a long road that, uh, that we started in 2016. And uh, I just could not be more excited to witness it and also to be uh, chairing this committee, which is on the cutting edge of this uh, revolutionary new uh, technology for Massachusetts. And finally, I'll say that this is an opportunity for Massachusetts to achieve energy independence, which is something we have not had in a, in a long time. I've suggested to some folks that we probably had energy independence 100 years ago when the city of New Bedford was creating whale oil to uh, light lamps. Mm -hmm. uh, but today we're going to have uh, offshore wind that is right off of our shores, and we're not going to have to rely on imports of energy in the form of natural gas coming up on pipelines or coming in ships uh, into the harbor to deliver uh, you know, uh, fossil fuels. Uh, so it's, uh, it's an incredible, uh, thing to see. It's an incredible thing to be a part of and, uh, really, um, something that, uh, I will look back on, uh, for the rest of my life is, as uh, something that, uh, I'm most proud of having been involved in serving in the Massachusetts legislature. I think that you are on to a, an appropriate, I don't know, simile, uh, metaphor or whatever, but I mean, comparing this to the great public works of the uh, New Deal era is a good, is a, the right direction to go in, right? I mean, this is groundbreaking civilizational change that will impact people for hundreds of years. So I think that that's a good way to think of it. Um, I think that the, I know of, of myself of 10, well, I don't know, 15 years ago, I got to go to Palm Springs, California, where they have, it's one of the original wind turbine places. So they have hundreds of 
little tiny, small in the, in this day and age, right? You know, 600 kilo, kilowatt, all of them spinning at once. And it's just, it's mesmerizing. And it, it's, uh, I can imagine that being out on the water with 62 wind turbines this November would be the similar kind of, uh, I don't know what the right word is, awe-inspiring kind of position to be in. I, I would love to see those. And I, I just, just to echo your second point, Jeff, is that the last time I checked, it, it is some, it is to say something like annually, Massachusetts sends something like $20 billion out of the state to buy fossil fuels. So, and, and you say export, you really can't export from a state here in the America, but we're, we're sending $20 billion out of the state to buy this stuff. And now we'll be energy independent. That $20 billion stays here in Massachusetts and continues to boost the economy locally, which is fantastic. And the, the third thing is, Steve, I'll send you the link if you don't have it, but there was a, there was a drone video of the first a uh, wind turbine exiting out of New Bedford Harbor. It's just marvelous to see. Did you see it, Steve? Did you? Yes. Uh... Yeah, I was. I'll include that in the show notes so that if anybody did not see that, um, yeah, it, it is certainly mesmerizing. The ship obviously is moving fairly slowly, but it's just impressive in its size. And I can just imagine seeing those. I mean, having talked with you once upon a time, you had visited the testing facility for the turbine blades one of those blades didn't even fit inside the building because they were so large seeing three of those on top of the turbine out in the water with another 60 or so that that's that's an uh, that's an amazing sight to try and picture sure i i did hear from uh one of my colleagues who represents the city of new bedford and um he had called me a couple of weeks ago and he, and he said jeff he says, I grew up in New Bedford. I've been here all my life. I've never seen such robust activity on the port in all my mm. years. And and he's in his late 50s. Sure. So I've never seen anything like this. You need to get yourself down here to see the activity on the port. Now, I've been there uh, several months ago when things were just beginning to ramp up, but it was a very empty uh, port. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting back there. I was supposed to go on September 15th. They were going to have the ribbon cutting uh, for Avant Grid and Vineyard Wind to uh, celebrate moving this material out into mm -hmm. the ocean. But uh, I don't know if you recall, but there was a, a Hurricane Lee uh, was making its way up the coastline. Uh, so they didn't want, uh, you know, uh, a lot of us... Uh, uh, folks out there exposed to a hurricane uh, mm -hmm. when we were trying to celebrate something uh, real good. So that's going to be rescheduled. Hopefully that will come in the next few weeks and hopefully I'll get to visualize uh, this activity down uh, in New Bedford firsthand because that's what, you know, not only are we trying to clean the environment and stem the tide of global warming and climate change, but we're trying to bolster the economy for our communities throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts mm -hmm. and to see New Bedford coming back to life at this pace and at this level uh, is really heartwarming. And I was so encouraged when I got that call from my colleague who, you know, felt the need to, to share that with me. 
Steve, I jump in and just paint a visual picture because I have been to the chain link fence that surrounds the the staging area in down in New Bedford on the port of New Bedford, and it is it's it's remarkable. You go there, and there are sort of these I beam frames, right? You can see maybe a hundred yards away that are carrying nine, ten, twelve of these blades that are each the wind turbine blades that are each something like 300 feet long. Mm -hmm. It's this enormous construction. Behind that are the towers that they they would, that the wind, you know, that, that sits on. And they are stacked kind of, you can see they're like in two pieces and someone's going to pick one up and put them on top of the other. These really tall, several hundred feet tall towers and then if you get your timing right you can see what are called the nacelle which is actually is the little box on top of the pole yeah, that has the, the generator high, in it yeah, control tower and, and they're sitting yeah. there and they're they're enormous and you can see it through the fence and these things are getting staged and sent out on a regular basis and it's a, it's a fascinating thing to see and what struck me i get you know excited about this stuff <laughs> the boat that carries, so they send out, they send out one wind turbine at a time. As Jeff said, it, it, I guess it's a day to set it up. There's three blades, the nacelle and the towers. It goes out, and from what I read, the boat that carries everything has feet that go down into the water, fifty or sixty feet, to stabilize the boat itself, so that it can pick these things up and attach them to a you know, 300 foot tall tower, just an incredible technology. And you can imagine the number of jobs and people that are required to make that all happen. And that's why the Port of New Bedford is bustling again. It's really, it's quite fascinating. I, I get such a kick out of uh, the whole thing. Yeah, we'll have to schedule a trip back. I know my wife and I had spent a wonderful weekend there in October. So similar time season is now. Um, I think it was 16, 17, something like that. And we had the long walk along the harbor front, the bike trails and stuff there along the breakwater. Uh, from a reporting side, I was surprised and enlightened to learn that the uh, Roberts Rules of Order actually were born in New Bedford. The Captain Roberts was stationed at the Civil War port. And while he was doing some abolition advocacy in his off hours, they were trying to conduct some meetings and the meetings weren't, you know, being productive. They were dissolving in discussion. So he drew up the Roberts Rules of Order that is still in use today. Obviously modified a little bit, but it's originating there. Wow. in New Bedford. So it, it, there's so many New England ties there. It's just incredible. And I know Jeff, another you're reason very to be proud familiar of... with the Roberts Rules of Orders in your, your space too. It's amazing. I know them all too well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one more reason to be proud of my fair city. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. And I think one other piece just from kind of the not so much climate, but governmental side, um, given some of the lack of progress in terms of, you know, the Congress, et cetera, I think on your Irish trip, you ended up finding out there was something even more staggering, if I recall that story, where one party can or one member of a party can refuse to agree. So that parliament or one of the parliaments hasn't met in what? 
some number of years? So uh, that's in Northern Ireland, which has their own parliament. Uh, and we went after we uh, visited the walls and uh, the area where the troubles were, we went over to their parliament building and uh, learned that uh, their parliament has not sat in three years because they have a rule that if a uh, one of the minority parties or any party objects, they can hold up any action. And we met with uh, several members of parliament who had not sat for three years. They, there's no government movement. And of course, my reaction was, Jesus, I thought things were bad in Washington, D.C., <laughs> Uh, this is uh, this takes that to a, to a new level. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's it's unfortunate, um, but it's the the way their system uh, grew, and uh, it does not seem to be a movement afoot to make any changes there. Eventually, I, I suppose they'll get back to business, um, but it was you know it was rather, uh, I will say, amusing to uh, witness this. And here we were, um, you know, sitting in the great hall, uh, you know, talking with members of uh, parliament. And, and then there was another panel that was talking about uh, tourism opportunities for Massachusetts and uh, Northern Ireland. And, uh, you know, we're just sitting there going, but you have this building that you haven't used. And we're all sitting there saying, well, are these folks getting paid even though they haven't worked? And uh, mm. I, I will say they uh, they haven't missed a paycheck uh, in all of this. Uh, I suppose they are still doing constituent services. They're just not doing uh, any legislating. And I don't think any of them were proud of that fact. Uh, nobody was, you know, boasting about it. But it just goes to show you how uh, different governments in different parts of the world operate uh, quite differently from us. And, you know, it's not as if uh, they have uh, state governments underneath their federal government that can carry business on. No, that's something that's unique to the United States of America. So uh, when our federal government is in a catastrophe like it is today, well, we have state governments who pick up the slack and take on uh, those issues. Um, they don't have that in a country like uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, the the federal government there is it. It's, I mean, it raises for me a whole bunch of interesting questions that go you know beyond are related to climate, but but go beyond climate about how do you, with intention, manufacture the societal cohesion, right? Sort of just the the baseline agreement between the players that you keep things running. Like the uh, the the Northern Irish Parliament and or our House of Representatives, which seems to be basically in a in a stall mode. I mean, th there's there's no easy answer, but I mean that's the kind of thing that we need to think about: is how do you how do you get back to the basic commitment to a community that we all live in, right? Where we all want to make progress to the point where at least we're talking to each other, and that's a big ticket, I think, for. Both the United States and the rest of the world are human, probably a human condition. Yeah. No, it was uh, it was definitely interesting to see. And then when you you know we go back to Dublin and we see, uh, you know, everything is 
moving swimmingly there. Uh, their economy is uh, booming. There's a lot of uh, industry going on. Tourism is is uh, very heavy out there. So a uh, little contrast uh, from what we saw. Uh, I got a question for you, Jeff. Jeff, just yeah. uh, uh, this, I mean, this strays farther and farther away from climate stuff, but Ireland is still in the EU, correct? So when you went into Northern Ireland, did you have to cross a border and show a passport or something? Or is there a some kind of special wink and nod deal that you can go back and forth in Ireland? There was no need for us to show uh, a passport. It is funny that, so Ireland is in the uh, European Union. Northern Ireland is not. Because they're part uh, Northern of Northern Ireland still. is British rule, which right. left uh, it, it during Brexit. So uh, we didn't have to do any border crossings or anything like that. But uh, when we stopped uh, to get some snacks at the local store, uh, our euros did not work in there. They were they were looking for pounds. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That, was, that was the only... Uh, mm. the, the only difference that was uh, notable, but they did say no borders, and that yeah. was uh, that was nice to see. Plastic at least worked in both cases, right? That's right. Uh, that's I pulled out the credit card for that that leg of the journey. So, having covered kind of the two trips, et cetera, I think that sets us up. Uh, you're still busy, albeit not like Northern Ireland. You're still meeting fairly on a regular basis, and you've got a yeah. bunch of things going. Uh, although the legislation at this point, legislature at this point, I believe, is kind of in an informal session, but you still got work going on. So can you yeah. enli enlighten us into what things we need to be paying attention to and assist you as you continue to drive us to sure. a uh, fossil free future? So we're, we're in the first year of a two year term. So, um, you know, all of us were elected in uh, November of 2022. The new session begins in January of 2023. In the first year, uh, as is typical, uh, you, do, you do the budget, which is a major piece of legislation, which we did. Um, you know, the House did it in April, the Senate did it in May, and uh, the conference committee uh, worked so that we finalized it in July. Um, but the, what what typically takes place in the first year, aside from uh, the budget, is all of the committees have their hearings. So 6,000 bills are filed. Every single one of them gets a hearing. And generally, you spend that first year hearing all the, all the bills. And there's a, a Rule 10 deadline, uh, which is in February, where the committees have to report out the bills whether they report them out as favorable, unfavorable, or they ought to go to study. Those are the uh, three main ways that bills get reported out. And so February you'll begin to... February 24? February 24. Right. So my committee is still hearing bills. Uh, we'll be hearing them. Uh, I know I have a hearing as late as October 31, probably be one or two after that. And uh, we'll begin uh, talking about reporting our bills there. And every committee is in the same uh, ballpark. The, the typical bills that move in the first year are those that are uh, real. You know, there's a lot of consensus that uh, something should be done. And 
and we'll probably have some of those bills on the horizon uh, shortly. But my committee is uh, working on yet another climate and energy bill for this particular session. It's come to pass that, you know, given what's going on in the climate space, uh, there ought to be a climate and energy bill in every session of the legislature. We did two last session. Uh, we'll likely do uh, one big one. And aside from working on all that legislation, uh, if you've been following the news, uh, the offshore wind industry uh, has undergone some turbulence, no pun intended. <clears throat> um, mm -hmm. But we, we saw uh, two major players. Uh, one being Avant Grid and the other being South Coast Wind, uh, terminate their contracts to build wind farms in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, and those were quite sizable. Um, the first one that's underway right now is uh, Vineyard Wind. That's 800 megawatts. Um, uh, South Coast was going to do another 800 megawatts. And Avant Grid was going to do 1,200 uh, megawatts. So the 800 and the 1,200, those contracts have been terminated. And uh, you know the reason underlying the termination of those contracts is largely due to the war in Ukraine and inflation around the world. What what does the war in Ukraine have to do with uh, offshore wind development? Well, most of the steel. Uh, that is used to construct these uh, turbines is from that area of the country. And, uh, you know, um, Russia is not producing the amount of steel it did. It's not selling the amount of steel it did. So that curtailed it. Plus, they were uh, they, they shut down the natural gas pipelines coming out of Russia. So there was a fight for natural gas that put inflationary pressures on the world because as uh, world markets were competing for uh, natural gas that was becoming rare, the price shot through the roof and that sent a jolt throughout the entire global economy and uh, put real inflationary pressure on any type of development. And that particularly hit hard uh, on the offshore wind industry to the point where the companies who had bid into Massachusetts projects using prices that were uh, pre-COVID and were pre-Ukraine uh, war became untenable. Uh, they could no longer get financing to finance the construction of these projects and therefore could not move forward at the uh, agreed upon prices. And some said, well, you should, uh, um, some said you should just stick it to these uh, offshore wind companies and, and force them to uh, move forward with the contracts because they entered into an agreement and uh, they should stick to it. Well, this was not something that was unique to Massachusetts. You were finding the same things happening in New York, in New Jersey, uh, in the Carolinas. All, all projects that were underway were suffering the same way. Indeed, uh, we had uh, similar things happening over in England, in Europe, uh, where the, the prices were just going through the roof and, 
and it was bringing the industry to a halt. So in Massachusetts- Jeff, Jeff if I could just interrupt for one second. I, I, I'm trying to, I mean, you're, I appreciate, very much appreciate your uh, explanation. You just said prices going through the roof. You mean the, the price of finance? Because if I understood what you said properly, that in my idiot description, uh, the companies that are building the wind turbines signed and said they would provide electricity at X price. Right. And they and then they had the permission to go and build the wind turbines. In the interim, inflation struck, and they can't get financing. So the people that would give them would loan the the builders the money. Say you're not going to be able to pay me back because your original price was too low. And that's exactly. the bind they're in, right? Is right. is that it's not only the it's not only the financing, but it's also the supply chain and the materials used to construct these turbines, most like most commonly steel. The price of steel went through the roof. Mm -hmm. And a lot of electrical components too. Right. All of the all of the things necessary to build these turbines, the prices were going up. The interest rates were going up on the financing. It was a a constellation of the stars uh, that just became untenable for folks to move forward. Mm -hmm. And different states have, uh, you know, attacked this differently. We're underway right now. New York's trying to negotiate uh, higher prices to convince these uh, developers to move forward. In Massachusetts, uh, the choice was made, you know, rather than negotiate a, a price increase, and we had a price cap that was in place that made it a little more difficult to do that, uh, we simply said, hey, if you can't do these contracts, you terminate under the terms and conditions of your contract. You're going to pay substantial penalties. In the case of Avant Grid, they paid $48 million penalties. In the case of uh, South Coast Wind, they're going to pay $60 million in penalties. And then they're going to bid in the next round. And the bids for round four are due in January of 2024. And it's a huge procurement that's out there. It's a, a, up to 3,600 megawatts, wow. one of the largest procurements in history uh, that's out on the market. The RFPs are out there, and now bidders are putting together packages to bid into Massachusetts again, uh, up to 3,600 megawatts. So that's going to replace the 2,000 megawatts that we lost and it provides an additional 1,600 megawatt capacity uh, of new uh, bidding that will be available. And I guess the presumption is that the new, so so the, the companies that reneged on their contract, paid a penalty, they say, I'm going to come back and give you a new bid. So the company says to the state, Mr. Massachusetts, I'm going to come back with a new contract with a new price and hopefully everything will go there. So we sh we should be prepared for the fact that the electricity would cost more because of all these factors. I mean, if they go back and redo the calculations as to what the price of the electricity has to be, uh, it's likely to be higher, right? Likely to be higher. And and I guess the the if for me is sort of the political question is what sort of um, opposition does that raise that is pure, that is a financially based opposition or how can we cushion that so that it does not become um, some sticking point 
to proceeding. I mean, it's 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 too important to not succeed. I, right. I guess I, I mean, I'm looking. Is there some way that we're going to ensure that we get this stuff built? Well, we're, we're looking at alternatives. Um, you may have followed the uh, hydro coming from Quebec. It was a jury trial in April of 2023 that uh, was a favorable verdict for the developers so that they could move forward with their project and build the transmission line through the state of Maine that will provide power to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Well, that project's now back on track. That's, uh, that's a thousand megawatts of energy coming along that uh, particular pathway. We're also looking at a second line that would come through uh, the state of Vermont that will provide an additional uh, at least a thousand megawatts of power. We're also looking at uh, in, uh, giving the administration authorization to negotiate for nuclear power from Seabrook and Millstone in Connecticut. They're producing energy. Uh, and um, yeah, it has waste products, but it's clean on the front end. And uh, they're going to be producing it to 2050, 2060. It's there. It's available. We've said to the administration, you need energy. There's a potential uh, source for you. We're also, uh, you know, made some headway in the geothermal uh, space. So, uh, and in fact, Boston, Massachusetts happens to be home to the largest geothermal, uh, largest net zero building in all of New England. And that's at Boston University, their, their data center, which just opened in the last year, an incredible space uh, that's running on geothermal, uh, solar, uh, and and it's it's a net zero facility. So we're looking at all these other alternatives. We're uh, hopeful about mm -hmm. fusion technology, which is being developed up at Devons and a company called Commonwealth Fusion. And uh, they are building a power plant, uh, looking for a home for a new power plant. And we're encouraging them to make that power plant in Massachusetts, which is the home of where they developed this technology. Uh, they haven't decided on a home yet, but there are so many uh, pieces out there that, uh, you know, we want the wind. We think wind is the answer. But if the prices come in at some ridiculous high level that uh, people simply can't afford, then we have to say no. Rhode Island just said no to a thousand megawatt project because the price was too high. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we'll be paying very close attention to those bids when they come in in January. And I think the message is out there to the developers saying, if you price this in a crazy realm, no one's going to buy your product. Mm -hmm. Rhode Island said no. Uh, Massachusetts could say no. And we're also uh, hoping that we're going to get bids from more than one or two bidders this time around. There are four to five major players in this space. There's no reason why we can't get bids from all of those players, which will hopefully uh, the competition will uh, land us in a good space. But we're not putting all our, our, our eggs in one basket. 
I guess there the, are the, a number the, of alternatives. my question that's great. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, that that's the the right strategy. One of the options has always been, and I know the state's been been thinking about this, but reduction of demand, right? So the so you the wind turbines are on what's called the supply side of the supply of electricity. You can also match up supply and demand by changing the amount of electricity you're demanding. I guess the question is, is are there any is there any ability to improve the efficiency of the use of the electricity? Although I, I'm, I'm as I'm saying this, Jeff, I'm thinking that we want to go ahead and put in heat pumps everywhere, which is only going to increase the well, demand yeah. for electricity. So we need all that new power. But it's a it's a it, there's two sides to that uh, supply and demand question when it comes to uh, the ultimate price. And before I before I before I give up the the floor again, let me ask the other question is and I know Jeff, I don't think you can answer this one particularly fairly because uh it's uh uh but it seems to me that it's like at some point, I mean the federal government built the Hoover Dam, didn't it? And it's yep. like this idea that somehow we're all gonna burn in climate hell because we can't get a company to get to manufacture something at the right price. Right. It's like the heck with that is too important. The federal government can just go ahead and build these wind turbines and do what they have to do. And that so this is, my, again, my opinion. I'm not asking you, Jeff, to respond. It's like we're stuck in this capitalist thing where everything has to be market driven. And that blinds us to the fact of the urgency that we have to get a solution. And that if the market's not doing for doing it for us, then we got to go around the market. Yeah. I'll stop there. <laughs> well, let's talk about the demand piece because you raise a, an amazing point. You are going to see the demand for electricity probably double uh, as we approach 2050. We're talking about electrifying everything. Okay. That means no more oil fired burners in a home, no more natural gas burners in a home. You're talking heat pumps. You're talking electric vehicles. You're talking um, a very high call for electric power off of the grid. So we'll see that rise. But we also waste a lot of energy. And, um, you know, I know there's a, a, a great effort afoot already to try and uh, better utilize our energy resources. Uh, I'll tell you, one of the bills that I have filed in this session uh, is uh, calling for the rapid deployment of advanced meters in people's homes so that people have a better understanding of the electricity coming into their home and where it's going and how it's being used uh, it also gives the utilities more robust data about how the energy is being used, what times of day it's being used, and whether they can um, offer incentives for you to use your electricity at different times of the day. For example, if you do have an electric vehicle, there's no reason for you to have to charge it between 4 p.m., and 9 p.m. when there's an incredible drain on the grid. 
what if the utility could adjust your time of charging, turn your charging on for your vehicle at 9 p.m. and allow you to charge it overnight and, uh, you know, when the demand becomes back on the grid at 7 o'clock in the morning, they can turn it off. But theoretically, nobody's using the grid in the middle of the night. Why don't we charge our vehicles there? Why don't we wash our dishes in the middle of the night instead of four in the afternoon? Those are types of uh, ways that we can decrease the demand on the system and more efficiently use it. But that requires advanced metering in everyone's home. Right now, we have what I affectionately call dumb meters in our homes. All they do is give you a reading about how much electricity is being used. They tell you nothing more. And, and those days are over. And, um, and I know the utilities are working on it. DPU issued a docket um, uh, order uh, just a few months ago calling for uh, more advanced metering. My legislation is going to accelerate that process because uh, we can't wait much longer. So that's the, the demand uh, side of the equation. Um, and now I've lost my train of thought on your second one. <laughs> well, let, let me, the, the second one was too harebrained to, uh, I mean, it's oh, like, what, uh, yes. why, do uh, we, why are we market-driven? Right? Turbines. Yeah, but, well, well, let's leave that for a little bit. But, but let, let me just, just follow up on the EV thread, right? Sure. So the, the, uh, the crazy visionary uh, that lurks in the back of my head says one way to reduce demand for electricity as because you're quite right, right? There's, there's going to be an increasing amount, increasing need for electricity, but you could reduce the amount of that increase by having uh, of electrifying mass transit and running electric buses from Franklin into Boston every 20 minutes, right? It would probably be better than some other alternatives. And I guess it's a much tougher nut to crack as to how you change a society to shift it towards less overall demand. But the image of electric vehicles and chicken in every pot and an EV in every garage kind of thing exacerbates the need for lots and lots of electricity. There are other ways that you go to the root of why you need so much electricity, certainly in the transportation center. So again, it's the transportation uh, sector. So I'll, I'll, that was the, the crazy revolutionary. I mean, I know that there's a lot of effort to get EV chargers into people, get them, make them available, and that's great. Um, but I mean, mass transit is also a good thing. Mass transit, I'm a huge fan, and that's another takeaway from my trip to Ireland was how well their mass transit works, how reliable it is, how resilient it is, how clean it is, and how much less they spend on their public transit than we do here in Massachusetts. And I, I actually took photographs of some of the uh, posters where they were talking about um, their efforts at electrifying public transportation. It was it was remarkable. It was refreshing. And saying, boy, that's a country that's smaller in population than the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And they've managed to do it. We can do it. Uh, and I know that legislation is is before us and we passed some calling for the electrification of buses 
and the electrification of uh, trains. But, you know, that's a decades oh, yeah. long program to transition and create the infrastructure. When we talk about all this electrical demand, I think something that uh, uh, a lot of folks don't think about is the amount of infrastructure that's necessary to generate this, the amount of substations that will be required, the amount of transmission lines that will have to be installed. And let me give you another example, since we have been talking about EVs. So National Grid did a study um, uh, about in the last year or so about what the uh, needs would be to provide electrical vehicle charging infrastructure along the highways in Massachusetts and New York. So you take a typical uh, service plaza. I think there's one in Westboro. Um, people from Aria would be familiar with the ones in Framingham and Nada. Well, if you were to put electric vehicle charging infrastructure in one of those service plazas, and it's enough electric vehicle charging infrastructure to be the equivalent of what you do for uh, gasoline pumps, the amount of power that would be needed for one service plaza is the equivalent of Gillette Stadium on game day. Mm. Okay? That's a lot of energy demand. To get that infrastructure in place to provide that amount of power is going to require more substations. And, uh, Ted, I haven't met the community yet that <laughs> raised his hand and said, you know, this would be a good place to put that substation. And uh, I was talking to a group yesterday, and it reminded me of what's going on over in Medway. So Medway is um, is being considered for a very large battery storage facility because um, of its unique placement along the grid, and it would really work well. It's 250 megawatt battery storage facility, which is quite large, one of the largest ones in the world. Um, but there are some in the community who say, yeah, we agree that climate change is necessary and, and we agree with all of the principles that you espouse about fighting global warming and climate change. But we just don't think Medway is the appropriate place to put a facility like that. Right. And that's something we hear over and over and over again. And it's why I filed a bill calling for uh, permitting reform in uh, Massachusetts, uh, to uh, streamline the process for getting permits for renewable uh, power infrastructure so that we can get these things in place, um, have a streamlined process. Instead of taking three to five years, we should be able to do this in 18 months. And we're, we're looking at that as another piece of legislation because we can't do what we need to do without collaboration and cooperation from our communities and the residents of those communities. That's a fascinating question because I, I recently was talking with someone who was suggesting that I think in California, and what he was suggesting is that at the federal level it should be done, but that uh, the states can pre-screen uh, all plots, you know, all potential sites for different sorts of energy and begin the, begin the discussion with the community years before any actual proposal comes through. Right? Yeah. And 
that is a way to engage the community, shorten the cycle it takes to get something built by uh, by doing that pre-work. And I know that actually the state of Massachusetts did that recently by by measuring where you could put solar panels, right? Could, right, yep. Steve, we talked about that a couple, mm -hmm. is that you can look up your address and it's assigned whether or not, I mean, something like that is a, another way to, shall we say, short circuit opposition and put the right things in the right places where they need it. Because I agree completely, Jeff, it's a horrific problem. Everybody, you know, nobody, everybody thinks it's a good idea for somebody else to, uh, to accept. And that's, that's a tough one. I think given mindful of the time, Jeff, uh, we appreciate your uh, insights. We could still go for another hour, <laughs> if not more. <laughs> so we're going to have to schedule to come back if that's okay with you. But I, I would love to come back. Uh, you know, this is a topic, I think, education uh, of folks in what's involved in this is key. I truly appreciate what you folks are doing uh, to try and get people talking about this it, it makes a world of difference so i'll come back anytime i could talk for days on this topic absolutely well we appreciate that certainly taking time today and we will definitely uh talk and compare calendars and find another time uh, so we thank you again and quick reference for the listeners we do this because franklin matters we are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.